Okay, today I'm talking to Mick Punchin, Racecourse bookmaker and affectionately known as Spinning Mick. Thanks very much, Mick, for taking some time out to talk to us today. No problem. Um, just to, for a bit of background for people watching, you've been involved in Racecourse bookmaking since 1987 when you were aged just 14, so an adult life in the ring. Yeah. Has it been a, a life well spent? Well, I would say so, yes. I think my parents might have said it was a, a bit of a waste, but uh, no, I've enjoyed 99% of the days and, uh, you know, the atmosphere and the... Um, the buzz on the race course in the betting ring has changed over the years, but yeah, it's been basically really enjoyable. Okay, we'll talk more about that later, but should we head straight into what we're talking about, what's going on now? Um, your involvement in bookmaker politics, um, you're chairman of the ARB and a director of the FRB, have I got that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the ARB was uh, run by a gentleman who's, you know, has uh, done more than enough for, for the cause and he decided he was time of life to step down and um, me, me at 51 being the youngest member uh, I agreed to do it with the help of um, a deputy chairman should um, you know should should life get in the way of a few meetings but basically it's the the politics of on-course bookmaking and trying to make sure we get a, a fair deal from the race courses and everyone we have to deal with and ARB Association of Race, race Course Bookmakers, bookmakers yeah. and FRB is the Federation of Race Course Bookmakers which comprises of uh, the chairman of the ARB, the chairman of the um, National Association of Bookmakers and uh, the Rails Association. Unfortunately, their chairman, Robin Grossman, sadly died a few months ago, so they're in the process of uh, sorting out a replacement. Okay, the people might have seen you recently on national TV uh, talking about banking issues with racehorse bookmakers. As an industry, you're under pressure. Uh, with the apparent desire of the banking industry to go cashless and unwilling to service racehorse bookmakers. Um, tell us a bit about that for anybody that doesn't know what the problem is. Well, basically, you know, um, it's a cash, one of the few main cash industries. Obviously, we do take card bets now. We legally can't take credit cards, have to take debit cards only. And the percentage of turnover used to be 1% or 2%. Now it's above 10 and it's obviously only going to go one way. Uh, but obviously, to facilitate the customers on track, you need to have a current account and a business account. And yes, NatWest, after 35 years having the account, man and boy, sent me a letter to say, basically, go away. No reason given. There was certainly no illegal activity on the account. I could have explained every single transaction. They weren't interested. The big banks don't want cash. And also, to give them slight, ever so slight mitigation, they keep getting ridiculous fines for like money laundering. And if you Google, for example, NatWest uh, anti-money laundering fines their last one was 285 million which does tend you to think why they give two monkeys about people like me having a, a personal or business account it is very bizarre but yes they closed me down and if you don't have a current account you can't even pay the race courses the fee daily fee to bet i mean i have sorted that out now but me and plenty of associates have had accounts shut down for for years it's, it's not going to end and other businesses you know painters decorators anyone who deals in cash they're finding it very, very hard to um, dovetail with the uh, the banking industry. They're preaching to the converted, I know, but surely if racehorse bookmaker is a legal profession and is a licence by the government profession, so surely if you say, look, I'm a racehorse bookmaker, that explains the cash. Have you, have you tried something as simple as that? Honest, you can't even talk to someone who, who understands it. You're just talking to a, a, someone who's got a script or an algorithm and just says, I've been told by my bosses we don't want cash business at all, so we're just getting rid of it as and when we feel the need. You know, and, and 35 years loyalty to NatWest got me at zero. And in fact, in trying to switch accounts, they've made it as hard as physically possible for me to do it. So, you know, they, they, 
they get zero stars from me on any uh, on any review. Uh, you, you get the, you get the feeling that it's. I mean, in recent years we've all seen it that um, after decades or even centuries have been totally socially acceptable. Uh, mainstream past on gambling that people gambling and people that enjoy gambling have been demonised. You think uh, it's pressure from that narrative? It, it, it's the PC fun police. They're, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. We're all entitled to our opinion, but. You, I have customers, we all have customers, not just me, who come up and say, well, hang on a minute, I've used this credit card to purchase my ticket to get into the race course. I've used this credit card to pay for alcohol, for food, and now you're telling me I can't have a bet with it. And I say, well, yes, because apparently the this British government tells you that um, you, you, you're not trustworthy to know what you should do with your own money. It's a legal profession. We're heavily regulated. It is ridiculous, you know, if I take my wife to London for a nice weekend and ring up the Ritz Hotel and say, look, let's stop over for a night and treat ourselves, they can't take my debit card details quick enough. They don't ask me if I can afford it, they couldn't care less. People get into massive debt over shopping too much, catalogue, payday loans, and that's not stopped. And they can do that with a credit card. People are finding it almost impossible to bet with a debit card, and it is about time that, that people stood up and said, look, you cannot tell us what we can and cannot do with our own money. Because if, if the government and fund police get this through, where will it end? Will they say, you now, we don't trust you to, to spend the right amount of money on holidays, on shopping, on clothes, on cars? Where does it end? You know, if you don't want to gamble, don't gamble. We're not forcing anyone to gamble. People come here today, I consider us, me and my colleagues, um, a part of the entertainment business. You know, we're here to give people a good day out. We're not here to send them home bankrupt. It's ridiculous. And from what we sort of seems to be happening recently, even the race courses, which should be your allies, appear to be not necessarily on the side of the race course bookmakers. Would you agree with that, or is that a well? At the end of the day, they're running the business like we all are, and you try and do things to do what is best for your business, and that's fully understandable. However, it is getting to the point where the race courses really don't care who they stand on, the bars, the concession stalls, us the bookmakers, if their bottom line keeps going up, they will consider it a good move. Whereas I do think, I don't think they should make decisions to make it better for us, well it would be nice, but at the very least, we should be able to scratch each other's back, you know, we're providing entertainment for their customer, so why they want to make it as hard and as expensive it is for us to trade, it is, it's not strange because they're all pushing their own agendas, which as a business is understandable, but you know, I think there should be a little bit more, bit more give and take, you know, you know, help us to help you, but it, it does seem to be one-way traffic at the minute. Do you think they fully understand the actual draw that racehorse bookmakers are to a race day for punters? Because can you imagine a racehorse without racehorse bookies? Well, you've only got to go to France um, or anywhere, you know, uh, but pool betting in this country does not work. That's been proven. And it does. It will work at Royal Ascot and Cheltenham because you've got vast turnover. But even here today, Ascot for Shergar Cup Day, uh, the, the pool betting is, is not really a value option for, for Joe Punter. He's entitled to bet with the tote if he wants to, of course he is. But it's part of the buzz and the fun of the ring to go in and say, oh, you know, you're with a few mates, oh, I've had, I've had 20 quid at six, or oh, did you? Oh, I'll bat it over there at five, or his mates said, well, I shot all the way around and got a bit of 13 to two. That's part of the, of the of benefits of on-course bookmakers bring to the race day experience. And I, I, I have to agree, I don't think the racehorses realise all they see is how much can we squeeze out of them for our own benefits. Right Mick, the last thing I want to do is upset any racehorse bookmakers, but it does seem from looking from the outside in that they've sort of been taking all this without much of a fight. <laughs> um, what, you know, what are the racehorse bookmakers trying to do to promote their worth? 
for I, the I, race course. I, I, I'm glad you've asked that, Simon, because, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be unpopular here with certain aspects, but it, this is this is a, a, a million pound industry and pitches have been bought and sold that have cost a, a small fortune. And what's happened over the last, just before COVID and certainly since COVID, is, as you quite rightly say, the associations, you know, as chairman of one of them, I genuinely don't feel we have that much power, if any, and would be a lot better off being one voice. Now, a lot of bookmakers are going to say, oh, he's just going to push his own agenda, he's going to want this, he's going to want that. But we're dealing with the Gambling Commission, not fit for purpose, but that's another, uh, that's another day. The, the Levy Board, the BHA, the RCA, independent race courses, the DCMS, these people want to speak to an industry as one voice and the one voice needs to be an association that is represents all the bookmakers and sometimes decisions are going to be made that aren't going to be for the benefit of every bookmaker but you have to bear in mind in life life is not fair and you cannot help all of the people all of the time it's impossible to please everyone so once you accept that premise the only thing you can do is to you don't chuck the minority under the bus, but by and large, you make sure the majority of the people are helped the majority of the time. So I will be pushing for one voice to go and speak to these race courses, and then once they, and all the other uh, branches that I discussed, that mentioned earlier, once they realize that, you know, we speak for the majority, I feel that whilst we may not push the tide the other way, we should at least stop it taking us over because the bottom line is if we do nothing which you quite rightly said we have done basically nothing over the years the race courses rca gambling commission levy board dcms anyone you care to mention are just basically going to see us as a soft target because we don't stand up we did once threaten to go to court and that did go our way one of the rare occasions that basically every single bookmaker in the country stood behind the cause but if we do nothing, it's going to get worse. That's a given. So the obvious logical conclusion is do something. So I'm hoping over the coming months uh, we can try and get one voice that speaks for every bookmaker on track. And sometimes decisions will be made that might not please everybody, but they're going to be done, including myself, but it's got to be for the greater good because this industry hopefully has got a long way to go. This is We shouldn't look at ourselves as a ticking clock and it's going to be the end. You know, gambling, as you said earlier, is one of the oldest professions and pastimes since existence. So why should it finish anytime soon? We've got to evolve and become an asset to the racecourses rather than a hindrance. And what you've just said to anybody listening sounds perfectly reasonable. But you've been in the game a long time, longer than me, and you know it's almost impossible to get racecourse bookmakers to work together and agree. So do you think the sort of unique position you've got yourself in now is the younger generation up with a voice in two associations you can make that happen i would like to think i can be part of the process that makes it fairer for everyone let's like say you it's like when the government brings out a new law the media send someone straight round to the one person who's been royally shafted but they don't send anyone round to the 9999 people who think that's a good idea and you know people aren't going to agree with every decision that's made assuming a one association happens it hasn't happened yet it may not happen but I will certainly be doing what I can to make it one voice so that all the people we're dealing with to make our industry viable will listen to us and know that the majority of racecourse bookmakers are behind, are behind the, uh, our opinion.
Has that not been the problem in the past that you don't do a majority thing? It's if everybody doesn't agree, yeah. nothing happens. Correct. Well, everyone's just worried about their own six foot, you know, and we've all been guilty of it. And as would anyone who's got their own business in any walk of life. But basically, you know, the time has come now where, you know, as I say, if we do nothing, it's just going to get worse. It's not just going to get worse for me. It's going to get worse for the best picks, the average picks, the worst picks, everyone. It's going to get worse for everyone. It's an absolute 101 certainty. So something needs to be done. And if that means that not everybody's business gets better, surely that is better than us all just sinking into the oncoming tide. And how are you going to get, how are you going to get them to agree to sign up to that? Well, if we get enough people on board, hopefully everyone else will say, look, yes, that's a good idea. And with this, you know, uh, they are open to reviews with the race courses, with everyone else. And if we get a majority, I think that'll do. You know, if people want to be in the wilderness and fight their own cause, that's that's their right to do so. But who's got? If, if it's quite hard enough to get the associations, RCA, etc., to listen to the FRB, let alone if you're an individual bookmaker, they won't even return your call. Okay, we're going to continue this in the next part. Right, I'm going to carry, carry straight on from that part there. Um, just. And I, I love rate the betting ring and the bookmakers, and this, I've supported it all my life. I tried to, but it's just something you see, and you've got a hard task because I can almost guarantee that if I post something about bookmakers or bookmaking on social media, the very first negative comments will be from other bookmakers. I mean, is it not frustrating that they're their it, own it, worst enemies? Correct, it is. But I'm just glad I don't go on social media because social media is a virus, and you know, if I could, if I could ban it tomorrow, I would. Um, but it's a good reach tool, though. It, it is a good reach. Social media but the majority of people who are on there, are like, it's like you just said, they're just looking for any reason to moan or be jealous or they're the green-eyed monster. Oh yeah, 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 great, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I don't think I've ever posted on social media, and the chances are I never will because, you know, a, a genuine person or friend knows what you've done is hopefully a good thing. You know, I don't need clarification from people I don't know. And all you're doing is inviting people that to just write things that they can't prove are true anyway. So it is frustrating. And it, like going back to the previous topic, um, you know, bookmakers need to learn to, to stand together. Just because someone posts they've had a good day, doesn't mean you have to go on and say, oh, well done, well done, well done. I'm, I'm glad you've won a million pounds. But they shouldn't be going on spitefully, you know, but that is just human nature. And I don't think you're ever going to stop it. Now, this, this dates back to way before social media as well. There's been no recognised, as far as I can remember, there's been no recognised bookmaking industry spokesman that the media could ever call upon or if, you know, if there's an important issue to address. But in the past, they have, appear to have been self-appointed people that speak the loudest. Now, that's before social media yeah. and now on social media. And if you aren't on social media, you probably won't be aware of... I'm not going to mention any names who no. I'm talking about. Yeah. So. Is that somewhere where, you, is, well, should there be someone at the very top that is the go-to bookmaker spokesman? Um, I, think there is, I think there is a potential, you know, to have not so much a spokesman, well, someone who the Racing Post or on the rare occasions the racing makes national news or a national newspaper has a story. Maybe there should be someone they can contact. But like you say, normally people will go for this bank story. I was uh, contacted by the Racing Post and they did something. And, you know, but I'm not shouting my, my plus points, my minus points on social media, but I think it would be good to have someone or at least two or three people who could say, look, you know, if anyone wants anything, 
contact A, B or C and they will give a quote that we're all happy with. But again, you're never going to, just because they put forward something, like a jockey club spokesperson puts forward something, if a bookmaker did it, some bookmaker would be straight on saying, that's not what I think, you know what I mean? Well, this is it, you need someone that they agree, this is our man. Correct, so if you can get the majority of people, bookmakers, to agree that yes, all right, go on then, we'll give your one voice a chance, if that one voice is asked for a quote and gives it, the people who are on board, they don't have to go on and say, well said, but they shouldn't be going on saying, oh, I don't think you should have said that. And other people who do think, you, you know, we live in a d democracy, last time I checked, so other people are entitled to their own opinion. Whether people choose to believe the negative opinion or the positive opinion it is, is up to personal preference. Now, now, one of the things that made bookmakers totally credible before COVID was the fact that the SP, which all the mm. bets in the country are settled on, was returned from the race course. Yeah. That got taken away under the cover of COVID yeah. and never returned. Nobody knows. They certainly don't follow the old rules to return the SP. No. Um, would it, and, what, and we've also, everybody that comes racing regularly can see how much more value there is in the betting ring compared to what the SPs return, especially the short price ones. Would it not be a good idea, even though no bets are going to be settled on it for racehorse bookmakers to return their own SP just to promote themselves every meeting? I think that's a very, very valid point, Simon, and something I would definitely look at, you know, without mentioning names, one of the software providers, probably both of the software providers, could probably very easily give like a sample SP every day and say, look, this would have been our SP and match it to the industry SP. And you're absolutely 100% correct. If you are a short price backer, you should be going to the race courses because, you know, we haven't mentioned exchanges yet, but they're there. Everybody knows they're there. It's not a secret. But if something is 2.8, on any of the exchanges, strong possibility that industry SP is going to be six to four at best. Whereas on course, guarantee you every bookmaker will be 13 away. Some will even be seven or four. And you're going to get the odd one who's got an opinion and is going to be 15 away. You can have a proper bet when you come racing nowadays, you know, um, and there's no commission. It's cash to cash, no questions, no government queries. So I'd like to think, whereas in the past, the off course was stronger than the ring, I would say now the ring, especially on the anything resembling a decent day, is stronger than the exchanges or the industry. And if you're sat at home and you're back in a favourite, you know, and it, it wins, and you see SP nine to four, I, I, I would bet three to one on that on 85% um, of the boards at the track at that day at the off, they were bigger than that price. Absolutely. So there is a, a lot to be said for collating that data and maybe showing it to someone and making enough noise, which hopefully one in one association could, and hopefully get that potential back, or at least give the punter the option of, of having it. Okay, and the final bit for anybody that's not a racehorse bookmaker, they're going to be a bit bored by the politics. So yeah. just a final thing. One thing that you'd like to see racehorse bookmakers do now that their backs are really against the wall? Stand together, you know, don't, I know that's beating the same drum, but sniping at each other is not going to get it. It's, we've been doing that for 20 years. Not everyone does it, you know, but is enough sniping and enough non-togetherness, they're just going to self-explode their own industry. So it's time to make decisions that might be short-term losses for all of us, but long-term gains. And, uh, you know, I, I do think one thing, I think a dress code, you know, we're promoting ourselves as part of the race day experience and the entertainment. And as we all know, the uh, cost of living crisis, the luxury pound, 
if Joe Punter has got it, or you know, Joe Public's got his luxury pound, he's got lots of choices of where to spend it. He doesn't have to come to Ascot Racecourse or any other racecourse. And if he does come, he doesn't have to bet with me or any of my associates. He's got options. But make it a pleasurable experience. Standing there in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, you know, you're only making yourself look bad. But if, it, if it, I'm not saying loads of people do it, but if you walked into the ring and saw that, you think, oh, what, what, what am I doing here? I'll, I'll go, you know, the tote and the Brit vet, they've all got a uniform. I'm not saying we should all be there in a suit and tie, but that, come on, lads, make an effort. Okay, right, let's find out about you. <laughs> so you started in the game at 14. Yeah. Something that would be not even allowed anymore. Correct. So no. how did that happen? Uh, well, like everyone else in the mid-80s, I was a paper boy and a uh, little card in the county news window saying interested in horse racing good at maths ring me so it basically described myself i uh, i rang him up it was a no offense to him a small time part-time bookmaker in the silver ring and uh, i went and he showed me how to clerk the old days the good old days with a pen and paper and uh, another another gentleman had gone for the interview and it was toaster on bank toaster used to race bank holiday easter saturday and then bank holiday monday two days later and he had a pitch in the silver ring so I went on the Saturday and it was, I thought it was busy, but it probably wasn't looking back. I got paid a tenner, which I thought was great. And then on the Monday, it was going to be the busy day. So I did the odd races, wrote them all out. This other chap, when you're 14, everyone looks 40, but he was probably mid twenties. He wrote out the even number races. I started doing it. There's about 10 bookmakers in the now closed silver ring at Toaster, the track's closed. But anyway, and I, it was fairly busy. I was enjoying it, it was exciting. And then the race was off, the first race, and, and the bookmaker said, right, Bob, to this bloke, your turn now. And he went, it's too busy for me. I can't do that. So I clerked all seven races. The day went dead quick. I got 20 quid, and that, that was me hooked. Now, you've, you, you've, met, you've told me some of your background. You've got some very colourful names in your uh, uh, Gaz Fruit, Racing Raymond, Gus O'Neill, and Martin of Leicester. Now, tell us a bit about each of them because they're all real colourful characters. Yeah, well, that was back in the day when there was you no, know, there was a bit of banter and a bit of, you know, there was a there was a buzz in the betting ring on a daily basis. And uh, and Gary Fruit, um, his dad Tom Fluitt, they they ran Gar um, Fruit, Tom Fruit, and uh, I, I worked the odd day for him. He got me in touch with a few tat stores bookmakers, and I worked the odd day for them, like big Saturdays clashes, bank holidays. And I thought I did well at most of the time. Racing Raymond, that was part of your apprenticeship. If you lived in Leicester, you had to work for Racing Raymond. You had to have a day where you worked like a dog and got a burger and a can of Coke and no wages as he kicked you out of the car. Um, but other days, you'd get well treated. So, you know, and they were uh, great stories, great laugh. Gus O'Neill, I remember driving down to Windsor, the silvering those Monday nights when all the yuppies had the 50s flying out of every, out of every pocket. Great times. Uh, and I would be the tic-tac or the clerk. And then Martin and Leicester, he spotted me. He was, before buying and selling the pitches, he was trying to get on the back lines and making a noise. And truth be told, he wouldn't mind me saying, he was quite unpopular when he first started. He's probably not much popular now. But um, he, uh, you're, you're all right, Martin. We all love um, Martin. We all love Martin. But um, he paid the bill. And, um, <laughs> and, and he, was, he was trying and, and I worked for him. And then when the computers came on, he realised I was more of an asset on the front of the joint watching the market than I was pressing buttons. And it, like I say, you've got to evolve. In, if you stop swimming, you drown. It's the same in any industry. You've got to keep evolving. But no, great times. And I say, I, I've, I've, I've loved the vast majority of it. And you, for people of the Betfair generation that don't know anything about clerking in the field books, quickly run us through what was the... Uh, so if I called a bet to you, £25 each way at 4-1, to one, what would you do? Well, you, you, the bookmaker would shout, 
Um, if he was any good. If he was any good, the bookmaker <laughs> would shout, um, Frankel, £100.25 each way, ticket 472. And then it'd be Frankel, four tenors, four seven three, four fivers. And then if you if you had a good rapport, rapport with your bookmaker, you would know what he meant. So you would write four tenors down. So basically you had to tell the bookmaker any one time how much you'd taken on the race, what was the takeout for each individual horse, so that he could know how much it won or lost him at any given point. And on busy days, you know, I would say, look, it's you just round up to fifty, you know, I wouldn't tell him it's a five hundred and seventy-four quid. I would tell him, look, Frank will lose his six hundred. Uh, and then you would just crack on and it was good days and bits of cardboard how there weren't more disputes we get disputes now with a printed ticket that everything on it how there weren't more disputes with the cardboard tickets god only knows but, but they were fantastic times and, and a good clerk was worth his weight in gold Mick, um, we said at the beginning, affectionately known on the race course by all and sundry is spinning Mick. Um, you told me you were working in casinos as well, sort yeah. of in your youth. So was that where you got the spinning moniker? Where did yeah, that come from? Um, I won't say I've, I, I'm, I'm always affectionately called it, but yeah, most people, if they say, oh, who are you talking about spinning? It, they come back to me if they've been on course more than a couple of years, but uh, uh, gas fluid, gas fruit. When I was 18, the first job and only job I ever had was working in a casino. I was good at it and it was easy for me, dealing, counting the 21 and 17, 35 times table. And I come to the races one day and I think it was Leicester, but Leicester, I can't remember where it was. And Gaz said, here he is, the spinner, because he would sometimes come in of a Friday night, get his cheese sandwiches and a cup of coffee. And uh, he'd watch the black, Gus I knew used to come in all the time and watch black jack. No, but he said it and it just stuck, and it stuck for a long, long time. <laughs> no, but you working in casinos, you must have seen some real gambling casualties in casinos, because just by the very nature of being in there, you've got to not really care about winning, haven't you, ultimately? Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Like I say, I was 18 when I started in Leicester, just a small casino, but even then, it was quite busy. Weekends, it was, it was proper busy, and you would see the same faces, a lot of Chinese, Greek restaurant owners, Indian restaurant owners, uh, Leicester's a big, uh, warehouse and knitting and all the owners of that and they would be coming in you know and they'd be placing hundreds sometimes thousands of pounds every spin you know and, and the casinos then used to close at four in the morning which for most of them that was their only chance of winning if they were in front at four in the morning they could leave you know and we used to say to them last three spins about a quarter to four and, you'd, and they'd, have, they'd be betting like tomorrow was never going to happen uh, but I've, we've seen I saw a chap coming there very sadly probably long before the gambling commission he um, He'd been left farmland and loads of land, and over about two or three years, he, he, he managed to. He went from gambling £500 a spin to £5 on red. Quite sad, really. And the reason I'm asking that so, how many, and compare that to a race course, how many people have you seen that have been what you would describe as a gambling casualty on a race course compared to a casino? Nowhere near as many. Nowhere near. Because the checks in a casino, all right, now the gambling commission's arrived, and I think the gambling commission should have arrived for the on-course fruit machines, the bingo, casinos, because people were going in there, it, it, you know, and just doing untold, and no one checked, no one asked, can you, can you lose? And in London, when I worked in London for a year in the, uh, in the Victoria Sporting Club, people were doing fortunes, and, and, and the, I heard stories of the late 80s, you know, and CERN casinos would send cars to the houses of their best punters and bring them in. And if they did that now, they'd be fined untold fortunes. Now, talking about punting, 
you're also a very successful punter yourself, so you, you, you dance on both sides of the fence. Um, would you agree with that, first of all? Uh, I, I was, I was, not so much now. I will have a bet now and again, pre-race. I'm, I'm more like to find a horse that I don't think will win, rather than a horse. It's easy to find one that won't win, playing the form book for me, than it is to find something that will win. But before Betfair came along, I, I was, you know, we had spread betting, I was on course every day, and I did win. You know, I wasn't a massive punter. If I had £200 on, that was a big bet for me. If I had uh, 500 would be like two bets a year. And, but, but I won. But back then, there were lots of markets. There were people working in, people probably like myself, who were working for the firms and told, look, you're our sports, cricket, rugby, golf man. And it was just too much for them. So they would price up a million markets and you only had to play when you thought they were wrong and there was enough mistakes to make a profit. And Betfair come along and gave everyone, or exchanges, gave everyone the perfect price. And I remember thinking, oh, well, I'm winning good money. Now I'm going to get even better prices. And I, I put my hands up. The moment Betfair came along, I, I, my, uh, my annual returns from betting dropped dramatically to the point where I just didn't bother. Now, one of the pe people you've repped for, Dan Haig. Yes. Now, Dan Haig has refused to do an interview, but <laughs> he is well known as a formidable, very successful punter. Yeah. Now, did, did you learn much from Dan? Was he, was he able to part give any yeah. of that knowledge? I mean, he always said, I remember one of the best things he said was bad beats worse. Because you look at a race, you've looked at a race, and you think, oh, this favourite's a bit short, far to four in a bad race. And you think to yourself, I want to be against this. But you're almost against that horse without looking at the other runners. It's all very well thinking, I don't think A will win. But what do you think is going to finish in front of it? So he did teach me that. And also, even if you thought, well, this favourite's an absolute certainty. I didn't want to be, become a punter through the book. I didn't think that was the way forward, but even he would say, look, we'll just stand it, but stand it for the bare minimum. Choose your battles, basically. So you started buying pitches for yourself. So you've done well enough to get a few quid together to buy pitches in around yeah. 2003, 2004. It's Michael Cannon. Yeah. Where did Cannon come from, by the way? Uh, Cannon is my wife's maiden name, and it's a lot better trading surname than my own surname. Okay. And I put the only gunner, the only Cannon anyone knows is the Gunner's Cannon. I'm not an Arsenal fan or an Arsenal hater, I could take them or leave them. But it, it, it is a good trading name, and especially when you come down south at Ascot, you'll have people come up, Arsenal fans, they want to bet with you, or Tottenham fans or Chelsea fans, they want to bet with you because they want to take your money. Okay, <laughs> now, when, you, when you came in, it was a few year, a couple of years after Betfair, it yeah. sort of changed the ring that we all, of our generation, all grew up with. So why did you decide to spend that money to become a bookie? when you were making it pay as a punter and you, no X's? Well, it, it was about the time, as I said, when with the, with the dawn of the exchanges, my profits seemed to, you know, did not disappear, but definitely reduced. And I didn't know anything else. You know, I'd been racing for 15, 16 years. I'd, I'd, I'd long since retired from the casinos. I decided taking orders from other people was no fun whatsoever. And I just thought, well, I, can, I, could, I didn't get the value of the pitches right straight away. I bought well, I bought bad, you know. I don't think there's anyone who can say they've bought every pitch well, but I just thought it was a, a life I enjoyed and it was making a fair return, so why not? And how big's your portfolio of pitches? How, how has it grown since those early days? Um, I've, I've, I've trimmed it down a little bit. Um, I think a few people a few years ago realised that probably the best return on investment was buying the festivals, but that secret's out of the bag now. And, and I tend to treat my pitches as investments, as 
you know, investments have to make returns and, and that's how they should be treated. Okay, now you also started betting, betting in running but from about 2012, so that was after the finding it on the floor period. Um, <laughs> Another boat I missed. So was that something that you did from the pitch? Were you sort of... um, well, no, I was involved in the hospitality boxes. It, it, was, it wasn't a closed shop. It was, a, you know, anyone could, anyone could turn up within reason. And again, you know, I had a little bit of an opinion. I tend to have a very good opinion on the all-weather, Sutherland, Wolverhampton, which is handy because they were close to where I live. And uh, I would make it fit, you know, but I wouldn't ride the roller coaster of, winning fortunes one day and losing fortunes the next. But, like I say, I mean, I, I could tell you some stories that would make me look very, very silly and stupid and naive, but when you're winning X amount doing whatever you're doing, if someone comes along and says, oh, you should try this, you think, well, hang on a minute, I'm all right where I am. But yes, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a few good at it, but the game's almost died now. Do you still dabble? I do some from the, from the pitch, because sometimes you, you can physically see it live, you'll have a little opinion like you think, well, I saw this last week, you hit the front and stopped. So that's basically my opinion. And is your opinion, does your punting, even though you've got a, your punting brain reflect the book that you make or do you let the punters make it for you? No, I, try, I keep the two very, very separate. You know, okay. Like I said, one, the pitch is an investment, has to make a return. My betting is my opinion and I never let the two mix. And what is your angle making a book? Uh, well, I've tried various different ways at the minute. I'm, uh, I prefer the uh, mythology whereas whatever wins, I win. So sometimes you get stuck like a horse will collapse, especially with the exchanges being held up by thruppence nowadays, but you get a feel for a, what the public are latching onto a horse. And I have, you know, sometimes you think, well, I, I might want to get this favourite a bit early because I don't think this is a track that's full of odds on punters. But basically, rather than cheer the fifth of the one chances in, you know, which I'm sure will happen on, the, on rare days to get big results. I just want to put my hand out at the end of the day and earn X for my time and effort. I think, to be fair, it doesn't really matter which, if you're a traditional bookmaker, if you're an opinionated bookmaker, if you play throw it in betting shop bookmaker, or you go green. If you're consistent, we're all going to get the bottom line. It's just some of us will go, we're all going to get from A to Z, but some of us will go different ways. The actual end result isn't actually that different. And would would you be well? Would you say that is the what the every derisory insult they give everybody the green up button, or do you do it organically? I don't really care. I mean, when when there's seven favourites, I don't walk past going, "How oh, was it till a lads?" And if the seven if the seven fifth of the one chances, and they all go, "How oh, was the green button?" I, I couldn't care less. You know, but everyone's entitled to do whatever they want with their own money. And would you be in the majority or minority in the way you do it? I would say the minority, but ironically, not quite as a minority as I once was. A lot of people have, have come to the conclusion they've got money invested in pitches and the pitches have got to make returns. Some people are too old and stubborn to change, but I would say it's still the minority, but there's a lot more people jumped on the boat in the last two or three years. Then as a punter, how do you see current bookmakers, and I'm not really talking about racecourse bookmakers, I'm talking about bookmakers. Well, bookmakers in inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as I mean, of course. Yeah. Well, they don't. Well, I mean, even before, uh, long before the exchanges and um, and gambling commissions and all that, I, I was getting accounts closed left, right, and centre. You know, Bet Three Six Five, whatever her name, Diane, I forget her surname. You know, very successful and should be applauded what she's done. But we we started calling them Bet Three Pound Sixty Five when the first came because that's all you could have on. But they've got great algorithms. They're running as a business. 
and before they used to send you a letter saying, you know, our trading decision, your business is no longer viable. Now you go to have a bet and they say max bet 27 pence. So they're not closing your account because they don't want that publicity. But basically, to anyone who's got half a brain, they are closing your account. And it's, it's, it's sad really because they'll, they'll put in the paper, oh, some geezer had 100 grand on the football, and yet you'll have a feature race at Cheltenham or Royal Ascot, and Joe, Joe, Joe Punter walks in and wants a bet. It's not information, he, hasn't got, he doesn't know anything. It's a 26-runner handicap at Ascot, for, for crying out loud. Uh, and, he's, and, he's, and he's minimalised to a, a token bet, you know. I know that they're runners, they run all these big betting firms, they're run by bean counters. Okay, then we're at this last couple of questions, how viable are race meetings these days? I mean, during the week, do you go, do you, what I mean is, do you pick your battles where you attend? Most definitely, yeah. I mean, I've, I've got good picks, bad picks, average picks, terrible picks. I'm number one at Southall on the, on the jumps, and some midweek days, I would say, I probably shouldn't be there. The level of turnover isn't there. I'm just basically betting my opinion against Joe Punters. And I go almost because I've got nothing else to do. But I've, as I got a bit older, I've realised that I don't have to go to these days. But I'm like, I'm number four at Worcester. Or number three, sorry. And I go and I think, I don't really think I should be here. And then you look and there's another 12 or 13 bookmakers behind you. And you think, what are they doing? But this is, I would say, this is the oldest profession in the country, without doubt. If you look at the average age of the proprietor of all these pitches here today, I will be young and I'm 51. And they're just no, no different, but it's their money, it's their time, they can do whatever they want. It's made me laugh because the second thing, the first thing I heard when I started racing was uh, the game's gone. And the second thing I heard from bookmakers nearly every midweek was, what am I doing here? Correct. <laughs> but but <it's> a... <laughs> you go next midweek and the same bookmakers who are saying that will still go. I've come to the conclusion, I'm saying it now and I mean it. And I say, like last year at Worcester, I said, that's it, I ain't coming here again, it's a waste of time. And I didn't go to another meeting. Right, the final two questions, Mick. There appears to be, for the general public, and it's, ob it's an obvious thing really, because most people hate bookmakers, not hate them, but they want to beat the bookmakers. Yes. You want their money, they want your money. So there appears to be little sympathy for racecourse bookmakers. Why should people care? Well, I'm not looking for sympathy, um, but I think what happens is the general consensus, as you say, of racecourse bookmakers is we all have an online app or a chain of betting shops behind us, and literally none of us do. Maybe one or two I can think of. Um, and like COVID, for example, all the big firms, they got fortunes, record years, because people sat at home betting on the apps. We couldn't work. You know, again, I'm not looking for any sympathy, but I don't think Joe Public realised that we couldn't work. And then when we have come back, crowds are down, turnovers down, expenses have gone up. This is becoming very quickly a, a not a not a viable business as it was. The obvious counter argument is, well, you know what the expenses are, you know what the turnover is, don't come, which is very true. But if it's your life and your business and you've got to pay the bills, think well I was going before and winning this much now I can go and win this much what are you supposed to do so, so I don't none of us are looking for sympathy certainly not me but I, I don't think Joe Public appreciates the time effort and expense and cost of actually us being on track and other businesses they can put their prices up if you're getting a decorator around he might put his prices up and we I can't make you or any of this public here today have a bet and I certainly can't make them or we're going to have a fiver on. You can't have a tenner on. You know, I can't. We can only take what they want to give, but we accept that. 
and uh, that's where we are. All right, finally, imagine the, all the great and the good of racing were behind me, and they said, Mick, we're heartbroken by your story. What's the one thing we can do now to, to improve the lot of racehorse bookmakers? Just the one thing. There's a question to end, Simon. One thing. Um, what the, you want the bookmakers to do? No, what they can do for you. What oh, the what they can, can do, do for, for us. Yeah. Uh, if the great and the good were there, I think they should realistically look at what A, the racecourses are charging us to bet. They seem to group us in as a concession stand. Like I'm looking at the, the bar on the lawn at Ascot and that's guaranteed to make a profit, you know. Um, and we're getting, we're getting treated like them and we're being charged disproportionate to our turnover. So that would be nice. It would also be nice if they did us a little favour and I'm, I'm concentrating on the race course at the minute. You know, when you, when you buy a ticket, they send you an email, this is your QR code to get in. A lot of the tracks will say, this is a cashless site. The amount of customers have to tell me, oh, we didn't realise we could bring cash. Probably at the bottom in the small print, it will say, on-course bookmakers will accept cash, right? But who reads that? It wouldn't do them any harm to put it a bit more bolder on the email and even on the website of each race course there should be like a little promotional video which we could do and pay for to say on course bookmakers will be on site today when you arrive this is how to place a bet plenty of people i've never done this before what's each way mean a little promotional video wouldn't cost the track anything to put there and then say you know they accept cash and in a in a world where gambling is being slaughtered by zealots it's strange that they want people to bet on debit card because it's a lot easier to track how your day's going. If you've got 100 quid in your pocket and you say, if that goes, it goes. And you've had a few sherbets and you're tapping away, all of a sudden you wake up Monday morning, oh, I've lost too much. Bring cash, you'll have a far better day and it's a lot better experience when you win. So in a long-winded way of answering your question, I think the racecourses need to appreciate us slightly better. Brilliant. On that spinning, Mick, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks very much.